0: This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers, thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Territory Story Podcast. My name is Leon Logan Nathan, and with me, my co-host, Peter Gowers. Hello there, Mr. Leon. How are you, mate? I'm, I'm well. I'm uh, sitting here in, uh, in the room that you occupied a little while ago. I thought <laughs> I'd try something different myself. Yep, switch um, it
2: up. It's good. It,
1: yeah, and switch it on as in air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, she's a but, uh, No, that's it. That's it. Mate, um, we've got a pretty interesting guest. Uh, I keep saying that every every episode. Feels I love it. Like, it's, uh, it's, they're
2: always a special guest, yeah. but it's true. I, I've never yeah. pulled you up on it because every one of them is special.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, no. Uh, um, this guest i i know a little bit of I've, you know we've met before and uh and uh but but i can't say uh that i know him very well and i am really looking forward to getting to know him on this uh podcast and i'm almost certain that our uh guests and and you will be quite intrigued um mm. by some of the stories so uh Let's get straight into it. Can I introduce you and our audience to uh Mr. John Lawrence, senior counsel, SC.
0: John, welcome to the podcast. Hello everybody. Thanks very much for having me on. You're very welcome. Uh John,
1: you've uh, already um Indicated by your opening remarks that uh, you might not have been born in Darwin.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, 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 that's true. I'm taking migrant classes on Tuesday nights. Um, I've been here for uh, 40 years now, so they're not really (laughs) having any great effect. (laughs) But yeah, no, you've nailed me. Uh, I was born in Leith. Edinburgh, Scotland, in 1957, Leith, which no, Leith, it's no. the port, the port of Edinburgh, which was up until the 1920s. It was one of those ports that was an independent town that was previously a village and all that thing. So it had it has and retains a bit of its own identity like ports often do, but it's part of Edinburgh. Right. Uh, so, And as I say, it's the port.
1: So you mentioned Leith, and I'm transported yes. back to circa 1987 and mm. an album called Sunshine on Leith. Would that be the mm. same Leith we're talking about? <laughs> yes, it is. It,
0: it, it is. And the, uh, the irony of that title is known to Leithers because Leith is also known as Sunny Leith, and that's because it rains all the time. Um, <laughs> But there's even a story behind Sunny Leith, which my father told me, along with many other stories, and I don't have any reason to doubt the veracity of this one any more than any of his other stories. But apparently, it relates to the visit to Edinburgh Leith of the royal family, and I think it was King George the Sixth and his missus, and the Leith is, joins on Edinburgh joins on to. Leith, and to get to Leith from Edinburgh, you drive down a main arterial road called Leith Walk. And, uh, they went down Leith Walk in the carriage and so forth in the usual Scottish Edinburgh summer weather of drizzle and rain. However, when they crossed the border at a place called Pilrig, King Saul came out from behind a cloud and shone. The sun kindly abated, and apparently King George turned to his wife and went, ah, sunny Leith. <laughs> so Leith is known to Leithers as, so where did you come from? Sunny Leith. And it's a sort of ironic quip, mm. if you like. Now, the proclaimers, neither of whom come from Leith, <laughs> they, they, <laughs> which is probably their good fortune, they come from across the water, uh, Go going north across the first, of fourth, and they're from the county or shire of Fife. They're known as Fly Fifers, But they are very committed to Leith because they're mad, insane, psychotic Hibernian football club supporters, mm. which means I've got something very much in common with them because you're speaking to one now, uh, a mad, as they call them in shorthand, Hibby, which is short for the tea The club's called Hibernian football club. Uh, They're from Leith. They're part of that sort of migration of Irish Catholics, impoverished, who were probably unable to get the funds to get to America or Australia, so they just hobbled across the Irish Sea and made (laughs) it to Liverpool and and other places, including Glasgow, and some of them managed to get across to Leith. Uh, And so it was founded by Catholic working men, people that worked on the docks and all that kind of romance. And uh, they were founded in 1875. They're, I wouldn't say they're a singularly unsuccessful club, but they're not exactly Glasgow Celtic, whom I'm sure most of your listeners have heard of to a degree, which a club which were founded by us. We Hibbs actually gave them our B-grade jerseys to found their equivalent Catholic working men's football team in Glasgow. And, of course, they went on to much bigger and much better things. But that's the way sport is. That's the way football is. So, yeah, that's Leith, where, I'm, where I was born.
1: Can you tell us about your parents and uh, any siblings?
0: Sure. They, they were Leithers. Uh, my parents were both Leithers. Uh, and i come from, uh, I think you could fairly say, a classic industrial Scottish working-class upbringing. My father worked in a shipyard. My mother was one of 11. She worked at a biscuit factory. It's the whole, the whole poem, really. Um, uh, my father was one of three. My mother was one of 11. I was only one of two. I was born in Leith, but at an early age, we moved out from Leith. We got bigger and better and we moved to uh, another glamorous suburb called Granton, which was a uh, Council estate, or at least the part of it that I lived in, was a council estate. That's like a housing commission scheme.
3: Mm. You know, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. yeah. Uh, and it was a t- tenement, uh, and that was much better than the sort of really pretty deprived uh, flat or whatever we were living in in Leith, which I can really not remember. And um, so that was brought up there in Granton. That's famous again. Um, for another artist, not uh, the Proclaimers, but another great Hib supporter, and and not Andy Murray, the tennis player, which we can return to if you wish, <laughs> we, and we will, we must. But uh, fam- Granton is famous, apart from myself, from the <laughs> fact that uh, the author of *Train Spotting*, oh. Irving Welsh, he. From Granton, and he's he's a, y- a year younger than me. I don't know him, but my mates all n- know him because they all went to school with him, uh, which was a local public school, which I didn't go to. And of course, he went on to be, you know, seriously big and seriously famous. I mean, he wrote Trade Spotting. I don't know if have either of you read right. or seen that. Either there's two movies now. Well, the movie was quite yeah. uh,
1: at least some of the scenes in those the movies. Are, indelibly etched in my mind <laughs> so.
0: which, which which movie have you seen Leon have you seen one and two oh, or just look, one? I or think it might have gone?
1: just been one but uh, there were some pretty confronting scenes in it from memory uh, I remember oh, yeah. a guy getting oh, yeah. uh, just throwing up all over a toilet or something it's just oh uh, no it
0: was just it was too terrible <laughs> It was. It, it, was, it was. it was very reflective of life in Granton, at least, right. to be true. Mm. But, uh, Pete, have you seen any of it? I've seen parts of the first Pete, one. have you seen Train Spotting? Yeah, just parts of the first one. It was a little yeah, right. before my well, time. As you, uh, well, Yeah, sure. I mean, it's brilliant, but it's messy. Um, but, I mean, it's it's seriously sort of... Confronting, there's no doubt about it. It's, it's about the heroin epidemic that hit Leith. Fortunately for me, shortly after I left and arrived in Australia, so I actually missed that wave of carnage, which was the cheapest heroin in Europe. Somehow or other, mm. ended up in Leith in Edinburgh, and what happened there was that, as I said earlier, Leith was very much a sort of working class, traditional uh, type area where people drank far too much alcohol, smoked tobacco like nobody's business, didn't really do, a cannabis, which came in the form of hashish from North Africa. Uh, and it was really just a hard sort of working drinking culture. But then this monstrosity of heroin cheap arrived and because of its amazing addictive powers, and its consequential destructive powers. It just went through Leith and Edinburgh like a hot knife. And uh, that's what that book is about, really. It's a story of a group of four junkies that try and make their way out of the heroin scene in, in Edinburgh and go down to London and wreak havoc. Uh, and it's it's amusing in parts. It's, it's confronting. Uh, it's very artistic. Uh, it, it pushes out envelopes. The guy that directed it, I can't remember him now, but he's you know he's a very highly regarded director, and the actors. Uh, what's the guy? He went on to become very famous. I can't remember his name now. The Scottish actor that played one of the roles of Renton. Uh, uh, so that that was uh, that's what can happen with heroin if it's if it surfaces in a you might. See a particularly socioeconomically deprived community, and following on from that, one thing I've always been terrified about since I've been in the territory, which is now over thirty years, but I've always been very scared that something like that could happen in, in indigenous communities. And thank God, touch wood, uh, I've never heard of it. Uh, ISIS began to drift in there, but thankfully, not to the really paralysing and destructive effects that you might have thought, thank God. Uh, Cannabis has done its damage big time, and alcohol, of course, is the biggest of the lot. But uh, heroin, uh, thank God, as I say, hasn't done it, and you just sort of walk around with bated breath all the time if you know about how it can do people in like it did there.
1: Mm. Well, we we, we should talk about Indigenous communities. I think if... if if we can at some point in time, um, because uh, I know sure. if you've had some involvement uh, mm-hmm. uh, with that. But uh, look, you said yeah. you had a sibling. Is that a brother or a sister?
0: Yeah, I've got a big sister mm-hmm. um, who's still over there and um, married with a couple of kids. They're all grown up, of course. Um, my sister's older than me. Um, my, my, my upbringing was weird in the sense that although it was classic this and classic that, it was actually quite schizophrenic because my father um worked two jobs he worked in the shipyards during the day he was a shipwright so he was a carpenter so he was he was a skilled tradesman his father worked in the shipyards he was a welder boiler maker and that was rough and tough and all of that and uh, he got a job at night calling bingo numbers in a bingo hall in regional scotland what
3: happened? he was a
0: bit of a he was a bit of a showman He's a bit of a showman, my dad. He was a bit of a, literally a song and dance man. He was a great singer. He, he was a bit of a museo, and he was a bit of an entertainer. And uh, he, he did this seriously crap job of calling bingo numbers solely to get money in order to get me into a fee paying school, mm. which succeeded. And uh, I was the only kid on the block. And as I mentioned all my mates earlier, I touched on my mates earlier, they went to school with Irving Welsh, and my sister went to that school, and all my mates that I ran with in the street, they all went to the same secondary school. it's called Ainsley Park Secondary School. and it was rough and um, But my old man uh did what you what you can do for your kids uh, if you're lucky. And he managed to get me into a fabulous school from the age of five. I went to a school called George Heriot's School for Boys. And it was a serious, seriously excellent, high quality, high standard Scottish. And I stress Scottish because Scotland has their own education system. It's quite different as it does with its legal system from England. Uh, And so it was a very high grade school in Edinburgh, an ancient school. It was built in something like 1628. So it was actually built, yeah, it was actually built about, well, I'll I'll come to that because it it was (laughs) built 150 years before the first fleet. Uh, came, came over here and disturbed the peace, so to speak. <laughs> um, but it's, it's interesting you say Hogwarts because it's exactly, it's exactly that. It is actually the model for Hogwarts mm. because G.K. Rowling wrote the series of novels, what are they called? Harry Potter. Mm. She wrote all those novels in a cafe adjacent, in Edinburgh adjacent to the school is that uh, right? Yeah, yeah. It's now called uh, Harry Potter Cafe, needless to say. And it's walking <laughs> distance from my school. I walk past it. I walk past that premises every day in life. Um, but Of course, she did all this after I'd left the school. Uh, and she wasn't from Edinburgh. She's English. She was living up in Eng- uh, sorry, in Edinburgh and struggling to be a writer. And she saw that school, which, if, if you do yourself a favor and Google it, you can see the building. The architecture is absolutely stunning, and it's it's not dissimilar to what's portrayed in the Harry Potter stuff. I had I had classrooms in turrets. My
1: yeah. history
0: and English class were in a turret, uh, so it's it's all of that and more. Um, but again, and I went there from the age of five. I went right through the primary school. And then right into the secondary school. So I only went to one school. Uh, there was no girl, girls at the school. It's by aid now, I should add, but not in my day. Uh, so I, that was the so that that was a schizophrenia for me, if you like, because I would go to school, I'd get two buses to school, I'd have to, I wore a school uniform, um, you know, which was the full full battle dress, hmm. cap, blazer jersey, shirt, tie, shoes, shiny black shoes. And I used to get reception committees uh, waiting for me from the, the lads <laughs> in the street. I bet you did. When I came off the bus. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so that was that was an extracurriculum education that I picked up, which was uh, pugilistic, quite <laughs> literally. Straight fighter. But you, you, you bet. But... Uh, So I had this life where I lived with all my mates in the street. We were all my mates, and they still are. They're still near and dear friends. There's only a few left, I guess, but they're still there. Um, And then I met uh, a different class of Edinburgh people who were the middle class throughout my education, and I became great friends with them as well. So, And then, of course, as we became adults, uh, both clans, if you like, met. Mm. Socially in pubs, you know, like oh, meet this guy. This is and then, so they all know each other now hmm. to this day. So when I go back to Edinburgh, I'll invariably go to the pub and meet people from my suburb hmm. uh, and people not from my suburb who also know each other. So it's been, it was a, it was a it was a different upbringing in that regard um, because all my mates, literally every one of them, left school when they were fifteen, sixteen. Wow. And of course, I was able to stay on and get to uni because the school, the school I went to. I don't know about you, but I didn't like school at the time. And, and uh, I must, to be honest, it's pretty childish in a way. But I sort of really only appreciated my schooling really when I got older and much older, really. And when I look back on it now, and maybe I'm getting a bit romantic, but it was a it was a seriously good school. Like what I drew from it, what I learned from it, what they taught me, you know, and there were basic things really. But I really did learn stuff there that is hardwired. Uh, and a lot of it was mirrored in the street as well. It's A lot of it maybe is a bit Scottish, like the pursuit of excellence was a big thing at the school, which is something that a lot of schools have and should have. And it shouldn't be restricted to schools as well, of course um but questioning things I was taught to question everything at school but so I was also in the family home as well those kind of things critical thought thinking deep thinking all these kind of things the teachers really rammed into me all of us and so it was I really I really scored I was really privileged I really benefited um and of course, I was very conscious that it wasn't fair, because the only reason I received that advantage was because of money. And my other mates, who were smarter than me and so forth, they didn't get that opportunity. Uh, so it was... You know, it's sort of, that's the way it was. John, I I have to
1: ask you a question about this. Now, you said your father took a second job to earn money to put you through this school. So what was going through his head in terms of wanting you to have this
0: education? He didn't want me to work in the shipyards. He didn't want me to be a tradesman. He didn't want me to experience the low wages and the tough conditions, and he wanted... Improvement, really. I mean, he was smart. Uh, he wasn't, he wasn't a great reader, but he was smart as smart. Uh, and he, he ended up when I was not that old, really. He got out of the shipyards because he had to, because it was too tough and he was getting old. And he scored a job in the public service. He scored a job in the courts service, probably the equivalent of our office of courts admin. And he started, he got this job right at the bottom where he was the coal porter where he would bring in the coal from the coal lorry and put it in buckets and take it out to the respective offices of uh, the the, the staff, including judges, because he worked in the High Court, which is our Supreme Court. And uh, I think he he saw lawyers in action and he fancied that. And uh, he put that in my head, not much really, I mean, I suppose it was aspiration, whatever you call it. But I think it's fairly natural, really. And uh, yeah, but it, was, it was. I was. I mean, the, the what he used to come home from work, we'd have our tea, and he would go through the bedroom and lie down on the bed for about twenty minutes with a newspaper over his head to have a power sleep, and then he'd get up and he'd go opposite down the down the stairs across the road to the bus stop. And he'd get a bus from there to the city centre, and he'd get a regional bus from the city centre to this joint called Broxburn, which would have to be the biggest dump on planet Earth. It's in between Glasgow and Edinburgh, and he would go into a, a bingo hall and call numbers. You know, two fat ladies, eighty-eight <laughs> leg, legs, eleven, all that stuff, and it would it would be, it would be packed with women. Uh, and I, I I never actually saw him do it. Uh, and I don't suppose he would have wanted me to see him do it. So he'd do that every he'd do that about three nights a week, and he'd get back at home at night about ten thirty, and just go straight to bed. And the money he got would have been crap, but it was enough to get me to school.
1: What about your sister? Did she get a private school?
0: Well, she didn't. Well, she didn't right. get anything.
1: Interesting, isn't it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh yeah, uh, and uh, I mean. I love my sister dearly and, and and all of that and and we just joke about it, you know we, we just joke about it all right <laughs> but it was it was true and I, I was late i I think the the story go my sister's seven years older than me, and it appeared that mum couldn't have any more children after my sister alicia, and then all of a sudden, seven years later, I matched, and they, that maybe added to the luster
1: oh, right. the, the
0: gold the golden boy. <laughs> and so i take it your
1: mother was catholic is that right
0: uh both uh, my parents were uh raised catholic but they both uh became agnostic and uh, oh my mother yeah agnostic i think really they were pretty catholic with a small c they didn't follow through on it a lot of my family of course as i mentioned earlier my mother was one of 11 so I've got a lot of Catholicism in my family background. You know, I've got cousins that became nuns and all that kind of caper. But I, I didn't go through that journey. I didn't. So, and I, I used to actually, I also I, I sort of felt like I missed out, really, eh, because, I, I, because I wasn't part of that gang. We were, in fact, a minority in Scotland. The Catholics were a minority, and they were sort of, and that, of course, hymns were Catholic, all that sort of poetry, as I said earlier. Yes, so I wasn't really brought up in a religious way at all. Neither of my parents were religious. My father was very political. His father was very political. They were communists. My grandfather was a member of the Communist Party. He fought in the Spanish Civil War. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Well, that's starting to explain
1: a few things, John. (laughs) But how interesting, you know, a member of the Communist Party but then, you know, feeling a little bit capitalist sending you to a private school, so... uh. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, my father left the Communist Party in disgust, I should just put it it on the record, that when he saw what Stalin was up to, and he he describes it quite vividly, um, uh, the story goes that he went into a, a Communist Party meeting in Leith and they played a film and it was Stalin addressing the troops or the serfs. They were all, and apparently they were all kneeling on their knees in a field. And he was up there on the soap books reading the riot act or the five-year plan. And the old man ripped up his Communist Party papers and says, this isn't communism, this is rubbish, and walked out. So anyway, but we're, we're, we're off the left, let's right. see. So, John, you
1: obviously uh, had a privileged upbringing in relation to your uh, school. But after you finished school, what did you do next?
0: Well, I was lucky enough to get enough grades to get into university, um, which was the the plan. And uh, I I was, uh, needless to say, I guess, I I loved reading. Uh, I was always an avid reader since I was a kid. I was one of those. And there's lots of kids like that. Uh, Any wonder reading's a wonderful thing to do. uh, And you're blessed if you enjoy it. Uh, So I used to... Literally loiter in libraries. (laughs) But uh, so I I, I wasn't particularly bright at school. Uh, I had to work uh, and I didn't work because I liked to play. So I I, I was a crammer, you know. I I, I knew what I needed to get and I'd cram and got sufficient to get a fairly wide choice. And my my, my preference was arts and humanities, English, uh, philosophy, politics. And it's the only time my old man eh, really put any—I wouldn't even say pressure, to be honest—but I'll never forget it. Though he he says, "What are you doing for university?" And I says, "Oh, listen, I've got here. There's five choices, and I've got this university, university." And I went—I was going to good universities in England and in Scotland to read for, in the main, I think a Bachelor of Arts in, as I say, the humanities, whether it was philosophy or English, which was my sort of love. And uh, he says, oh, listen, I've never really asked anything off you, but I really think you should uh, do law. Uh, and that was about it, you know, and uh, and it was because he had put me through school, obviously. Uh, and he realized that law was a job, whereas English and philosophy wasn't. And, mm. you know, he, he'd been around the block and, uh, He he knew that he wanted me not only get a good job, but well get a job and get a good job, like a profession, not have to uh, work as hard as he did for the rewards that he received. So, And that was so cool. It wasn't funny. I I just went, you're on. No dramas. Didn't bat an eyelid. And put in as my last choice uh, law at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. And uh, that's where I went. And I didn't not, have a qualm at all.
1: Why not uh, University of Edinburgh, where you where you were living?
0: Um, I did. I wanted to move away from Edinburgh. I thought that would be clever. I mean, you know what it's like. I mean, you're of similar vintage to me. But you know, like when you, when I was eighteen, it was time to go. You know, you didn't live with your parents. Mm. It's amazing what goes on now, really. To me, <laughs> you, you just. No, you you flew the coop, and uh, so I was going to go, uh, and I, I I don't know. There was, actually, to be honest, I can't really remember if there was anything particularly specific in in Strathclyde. Um, it was a new university, and it had a good name. The law school had a good name. It was a bit it was a bit different to your traditional jazz because law faculties are invariably fairly conservative, at least then. And I I, I thought Glasgow, why not? Um, and, and believe me, going from Edinburgh, including Leith to Glasgow, it was the equivalent of going to Uruguay. Really? Oh, yeah. Uh, Why is that? Oh, because it was such a different joint. Uh, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but you get the point. Uh, but,
1: but, I mean, how far is uh, Glasgow uh-huh. from Edinburgh? You can
0: spit it. <laughs> It's and forty they, minutes on. It's forty minutes on the train. It's, a it's about 20, li- 20 light years
1: wow. uh, ahead or behind.
0: Oh, <laughs> ahead, ahead. I think really. Glasgow was certainly back then. Glasgow had a a reputation of being big, ugly, violent, and wait for it, friendly, which often goes together. Yeah. Because it was a very substantially run-down, heavily industrial, working-class uh, metropolis. And it was a metro- it is a metropolis. It's a million-plus. Edinburgh is half a million. Mm. So there's the difference. Uh, and Glasgow, you know, it's, it's coal, it's steel, it's shipyards. It's the labor movement. It's, the, it's Celtic. It's Rangers. It's razor gangs. <laughs> In- English
2: is the second language. <laughs> English, is
0: a, English is a non-language. <laughs> uh, you know. So it had that reputation, and it was deserved and well-earned, probably. <laughs> I mean, they used to have in Glasgow uh, graffiti on the streets and housing estates, which was C-O-D-Y. They'd paint up on the edge of a, a housing estate, say Easter House. That was a famous one. And uh, C-O-D-Y is an acronym for Come On, Die Young. What? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it, it had all of that. And and look, it didn't let me down. Um, <laughs> there was that, and it was really friendly. I loved it. I lived in Glasgow for four years, and I really dug it. Uh,
1: Sorry, so you lived in Glasgow, even though it was really an hour commute each way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I'd go home on the weekend and raid my mum's kitchen.
2: <laughs> like any self-respecting uni student.
0: That's right. Uh, I'd raid it on the way out as well, and fill my bags up with sugar and tea bags. Because you didn't—you didn't, you didn't really—you just sort of lived on. I think I lived on porridge, beer, and curry. There was there was great Indian. Uh, there's a really large Indian population in Glasgow, and so there's brilliant. Uh, Indian restaurants and I I, I I, sort of swear to this day but it's nostalgia no doubt that the best Indian restaurant still that I've ever been in is the Koh Inua in uh, Gibson Street in Glasgow which is just round the corner from where we live
3: wow. and uh,
0: so it was Indian curry, beer, coffee, porridge, beer and beer <laughs> <laughs> and the odd lecture. It was all a bit like that, but I mean, that's what. Yeah, I'll I'll tell you a laugh. When we were, I was living in a shared house in the first year that I was there with all these guys that I just met, and there was uh, an English. there's two English guys I was with, uh, and a couple of Scottish guys. And this English guy had been thrown out of the University of Stirling uh, because he had just kept failing all his exams, and he managed to get into the University of Strathclyde to study his first love. Which was his excuse for failing his earlier degree, which was something like English. But his first love was mathematics, <laughs> and he was a real mathematician. This guy, Jeff, Jeff Cole's, and he, I, I shared the room with him, and he like the whole room was covered in sheets of paper with equations and algorithms and mm-hmm. and all that calculus and madness, and none of which I could, you know, I couldn't relate to at all. But this guy was the real deal. And he was a real laugh as well. Like he was a—he wasn't an absent-minded professor at all. He loved to drink beer, smoke tobacco, chase girls—you know, the whole thing—which uh, is why he got thrown out of the first university. <laughs> uh, but anyway, this guy was a mad punter, as you'd probably expect. And of course, he reckoned he could work out the system because he was a mathematician, and uh, he couldn't, and he didn't. But one halcyon day, and it was early in the piece, we had just got to know each other. We were carrying this guy because he didn't get a grant. In those days, all students got a grant. So you don't, not only didn't you get a loan, you actually got money to go to the uh-huh. university. It was a bit of a pittance, but it was still not bad. You used to supplement it with working in the holidays. But this guy, because he had been bombed out, he had no grant. So we carried him. He didn't have any money. So when we went to the pub, when we went to the Indian... We just paid for his beer and that was okay. So one day he goes up and he he pulls off a trifecta and he won a thousand quid, which was a fortune in 1975. Mm -hmm. And he came back and he says, here we go. Uh, Let's go. So we went out on the town, as you can imagine, we went into this fancy restaurant, which we wouldn't even dream of looking at before this event. And uh, there was four of us and we sat four blocks 18-year-old Scottish idiots in a posh restaurant. And we ordered the same thing. It was prawn cocktail, which was very exotic (laughs) (laughs) for the entree. We all had prawn cocktail for the entree. And then we all had fillet steak uh, Mm. for the main course. And the waitress comes over and she says, how was that? And, of course, in those days, you're sort of hungry all the time. (laughs) And the waitress comes back and says, did you enjoy that? And she says, oh, yeah, that was brilliant. She says, oh, no, what would you like? Tea or coffee? And we all looked at each other. And as one, we virtually all said at the same time, I think we'll just have that again. (laughs) 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 And we did. (laughs) We had the same meal again. And then we went out and blipped it up. And needless to say, uh, we tried our best to make Jeff buy things material because we knew where the money was going to go if we didn't drink it and he didn't buy things. And we did persuade him, thankfully, to buy a a pretty small caliber motorbike, which didn't cost that much. But the rest of it, sad to say, went back into where it came from, the bookies, Mm. because he was a mad punter. And Mm. I met Jeff Coles, unbelievable, but in 1986, when I was working on the Royal Commission in the Chamberlain, living in Sydney like a a big shot. You wouldn't believe it, but I jumped into a taxi and Jeff Coles was driving it. <laughs> 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 I couldn't believe I hadn't seen him for years. You know, I'd known him for years during the university. And I, I, can't, I think he got bombed out of university again. I don't know if he ever got his master's degree. And he went his way and I went my way. And then and that would have been at least, it was only 10 years later, but it was still but to, to imagine that, getting a taxi and it was, I think it was like Circular Quay or somewhere pretty central. And mm. Jeff Coles leaned round. And oh, I jumped into the front seat and we just looked at each other and he just went, Johnny Lawrence. And I went, Oh, I won't repeat what I said, but it was amazing. <laughs> a small world. I think that's what oh, wow. I said. It's a small
1: yeah. world. <laughs> so uh, you finished your, your degree in law and then did you get admitted to practice in Scotland?
0: No, no, I didn't. I did the degree, um, and that was interesting and tough. And uh, I, I, there's one thing that sticks out for me reading law as a student. I was only a kid, really, 18. It was, I found it very intimidating because there was lots of extremely brainy jokers in the class, not to mention the lecturer. So it was all a bit daunting. And uh, we got to the stage of the performance where we got to Donacue against Stevenson. You'd be familiar with that case, Leon, Uh, I trust. And uh, that's a famous case, Pete, in in English law, although it's a Mm. Scots case originally. Well, I should point out to the listeners that Scots law is completely different to English law. We have Mm -hmm. our own legal system. So the Scots law degree is completely different Uh, to English law, whether it be contract, tort, we call it delict. Criminal law is different. Uh, Constitutional law is the same because it's British. But everything's different. The jury system's different and all that. They they retained upon the Treaty of Independence in 1707, they insisted on retaining their legal system, their church, uh, their education system, and something else I can't remember. And that that is still the case to this day. I think I mentioned our education system earlier in the interview. So anyway, to go back to Donna and Stevenson, which found its way up to the House of Lords, which is a case that expanded the law of negligence. Mm. People will be falling asleep at this stage, presumably. (laughs) (laughs) We'll come back in a couple of minutes. But Mm. it's about a a, a woman drinking a bottle of ginger beer and uh, finding when she poured the, the dregs of the ginger beer bottle into her drink, there was a dissolved snail in it. And she immediately took gastroenteritis or something. And she sued the manufacturer of the ginger beer. And that's what the the law was all about. Extended liability. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the case was decided in the house of Lords and it was decided three, two, that's three judgments for two judgments against. And I remember uh, the the teachers telling us, well, you better read that case. And I, I did. I went into the library and I read that case. And what, struck me and has always stuck with me, and it was a sort of real lesson about what this law caper was all about, was I read every judgment which was different and individual. And after I read judgment one, I thought, I agree with that. That's sound. Mm -hmm. Clever. Mm -hmm. Persuasive. Then I did the same with judgment two and agreed with that one. And then three, agreed with everything that one. Then we had the dissenting judgments, number four, and guess what? I agreed with that. That was absolutely <laughs> compelling. And then, and then I read the fifth judgment, and that one was right as well. And I, I, that was when I realised that this uh, common law stuff, these judges, uh, they can they can walk on water with words and rationale and analytical uh, method and so forth. You know, it was and I, I, which was scary. I remember thinking, gee, whiz. Anyway, that was anyway. I got through the degree, and um, I, 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 I fished around for my articles, or they call it the apprenticeship in Scotland. I was unsuccessful. I didn't really try. To, I had a couple of go, and I was working for the British Railways, labouring at the Waverley Station in Edinburgh. Uh, so I was staying with my folks after I returned from Glasgow, and uh, I was earning pretty good money working night shift, working in the parcels division. Of Waverley station and a good friend of mine who graduated in law at the same time did the master's in law at the university WA in Perth and he went over there with his girlfriend and he and I did some travel with him over in Europe during the summer holidays so we traveled a bit together and uh, he wrote back saying oh you should come over here it's unbelievable the weather's great it's cheap there's beaches uh, and other things Uh, so I had enough I saved up money and I That's how I came to Australia. So I just came to Australia on a tourist visa. Oh, I didn't emigrate, if you know what I mean. Mm. Mm.
2: That was beaches, you said before,
0: right? Oh, yeah, beaches. (laughs) Cottesloe Cottesloe beaches. (laughs) Uh, No, what was it? Cottesloe. uh, What are the other beaches in Perth? Cottesloe. And what's the one north of it I like? That was my favourite. Scabs. There's another one. Trigg.
1: Trigg. City Beach.
0: City Beach, that was my favourite. I thought your favourite um, might have been Swanbourne. Uh, at the Swanbourne Hotel, I used to go there <laughs> every Sunday and watch a band called The Essentials. We were a jazz, yeah. sort of rock jazz band. They were brilliant. Wow. And we used to go to the Captain Stillling on a Sunday and watch the Mucky Duck Bush Band. But before I got to Perth, I arrived in Sydney, and I arrived on the day of Monday, the 18th of August, 1980, which happened to be the day after Azaria Chamberlain went missing. Mm. So when I got off the plane at Mascot Airport, I bought a Sydney Sun, and the headline, I'll never forget it, was Dingo Snatches Baby at Ayers Rock. Mm. And I read it, and I thought, oh, that's pretty amazing. Little was I to know that five years later, I'd be working on the case. Mm. So it was was all a bit... I I mean, I, I listened to Tanya Heasler, uh, speaking with you, whenever that was. I just played it the other night when you put me on it, and it brought back all those memories. I, don't, I mean, Tanya would have known this about me because the case sort of followed me, or I followed the case, because coincidentally, the first day that I arrived in Darwin, and I was just hitchhiking around, and I was about to leave Australia, uh, probably from Sydney. I I'd got to the top end from Perth, The very first day I arrived was Friday, the 29th of October of 1982, and I was in a gang of fellow hitchhikers, and we all went to the Hotel Darwin green room for a drink. Little did I know that the green room was then full of media and others waiting on the verdict in the Chamberlain trial. And indeed, that verdict came down later that Friday night. And I learned about it because I got into a flat, somebody kindly that we'd met on the road offered us place to DOS because we didn't know where to stay. And uh, we were staying in a flat in Smith Street and I, I saw it on the television. I reckon it was 10, 11 o'clock at night. It was like a teleprinter across the bottom of the screen, like a cyclone warning. And it said, Lindy and Michael Chamberlain found guilty of murder. Mm-hmm. And they were sentenced the next morning on a Saturday morning, which is unusual. She got life. He got 18 months fully suspended. He was found guilty of accessory. After the fact, in that he had assisted her uh, hide the body, which to this day has never been found, and then so that's that's a laugh, and then things happen. I get married, and I go to Melbourne uni and manage to get into Melbourne uni and they gave me some credit for my law degree in Scotland, but I still had to do over half a degree points-wise. <laughs> well, that'll teach you to do a Scottish law degree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I did that in two years. And then I got a job as an article clerk with the Department of Law up here because my girlfriend wife uh, was working up here. I met her here. And so it was always the plan to return here. So I had this job. And the very first day I got the job, which was February something, two sixteen. Uh, they found that matinee jacket. Mm. And when they found that matinee jacket, courtesy of the German falling off Ayers Rock, uh, it was actually Bob Hawke, the Prime Minister of Australia, that made the announcement. It wasn't a territory commission. It was a federal one. And he basically says, we've had enough of this because there was a lot of scandal and lobbying. And, you know, she had done three years and she had lost both her appeals, but narrowly, She lost her federal court appeal 2-1 and she lost her high court appeal 4-3. And there was a growing movement of people that thought that her conviction was unsafe because of the evidence and other stuff. So Bob Hawke says enough's enough because the the significance of the matinee jacket was that it was at a place where it was a dingo layer. Mm. And so it was consistent with the story of a dingo doing the business, So anyway, he established the Royal Commission of Inquiry and uh, I was working as an article clerk in the public trustees office with uh, John Flynn as my boss and I was breaking and ruining everything I put my hands on as far as trying to draw up people's wills and somehow or other I befriended Tanya and I managed to get my foot in the door with a a one-week project to help her team on the Royal Commission which turned into the rest of my articles was working on that Royal Commission and I flew down to Sydney and was on the greatest show on earth watching that Royal Commission with Tanya doing all the work (laughs) (laughs) and it's been downhill ever since (laughs) (laughs) that's what she said actually (laughs) well how could it be otherwise yeah that's right I mean this was the greatest show on earth yeah, It really was. It was a platinum bar table. I mean, the, the Chester Porter QC was council assisting, who was just like a living legend of the Australian bar. Ian Barker QC, John Winnicke QC, all people that went mm. on. John, Ian Barker's still alive, and John Winnicky's passed away recently. He went on to become the president of the Court of Appeal. Uh, Trevor Morling was a federal court judge. He was the commissioner. It was just ridiculous. Ken Crispin was a junior to John Winnecke, he went on to become a judge. And we just, well, when we could, we just sat back and watched this amazing show. Uh, John, it it,
2: it still fascinates me to this day that uh, everybody's still got an opinion on this. You hmm. obviously saw saw more than most others on the planet. What's your gut feel? Did she do it or did she not do it?
0: Well, I never fancied it from the beginning. From the very first newspaper article. Mm. And then I watched the case unfold. And what happened was, what made this case so extraordinary? There was lots of things that made it extraordinary. But one of the main things for me was it was a witch hunt. Mm. And it became a witch hunt because poor Lindy Alice Lynn Chamberlain uh, behaved inappropriately almost at every opportunity. Mm. Poor women just couldn't. A step right, and some people are like that, you know. We're not all that cool, and she certainly wasn't. And she wasn't stupid or anything, but she just was she just kept putting her foot in things. And her behavior was odd, and the behavior was strange. And one and one becomes three, and mm-hmm. then it becomes seven, and then people start talking about Azaria meant sacrifice in the wilderness. Mm. And before you know it, uh, it's a witch hunt, and the media are pouring petrol all over it. And what I what hit me about this case, genuinely, was that when I was at school, I read a very famous novel called The Outsider by Albert Camus, French writer, existentialist. And I don't know if either of you have read that book or are familiar with it. Are you? No, I'm not. It's not well,
2: my top ten.
0: <laughs> well, it it should be. It should be. It's, it's an absolute classic, and it's about a, a young guy who behaves in a similar fashion in uh, a small town in Algiers, and he basically commits a homicide um, event in the in the in the book. But the book describes that he was sort of young, dilettante, no few friends had a, had a casual girlfriend and then his mother dies and he goes and attends his mother's funeral and he doesn't show any emotion about the fact that his mother's dead and he sits up during the night at the wake, smoking cigarettes, looking normal, act, acting not like people were expecting, blah, blah, blah. And then to cut a long story short, he, he, he finds himself accidentally in the possession of a pistol, something really stupid happens and somebody adds him a gun. He gets this gun and then he's walking along the beach with it and it's really hot. And a young Arab sort of terrorist comes up to him and confronts him and attacks him with a knife. And so he pulls out the gun and shoots him dead. So it's a self-defense case, you might think. Mm. Uh, And he's he's prosecuted for it. And the prosecutor uses the fact that he didn't cry at his mother's funeral.
3: Uh to persuade
0: the court to find him guilty. And he is found guilty and he's executed. So when Lindy Chamberlain is unravelling in front of me, I just kept thinking of the outsider. I was thinking, this woman's digging a grave. So I didn't fancy it uh, in that regard. But at the same time, you know, the, the other thing I didn't fancy about it was having a Scots law degree. There, another significant difference between Scottish law and English law in the law of evidence is that you cannot be charged in Scotland of a crime unless there is corroboration of real evidence. In other words, you cannot be charged on a purely circumstantial evidence case, which you can in England and Australia. And of course, Chamberlain was a circumstantial evidence case. There was no body, there was no motive, there was no admissions, Mm. uh, there was no weapon. It was just a combination of circumstantial evidence which made it compelling on the crimes case that she killed the child. Mm. And it used to strike me as that she may not have, I'm not saying she wouldn't have been charged in Scotland, but the authorities would have looked at it with a different pair of glasses. Yeah. So that affected me. So I looked at it with Scottish glasses as well and thought, Oh so I wasn't really keen on it, but I, I think I was open enough. And then I was on the cr- prosecution team in the Royal Commission. So I analysed all the evidence. I read everything, all the, all the statements, all the coronials, all the trial, all the appeals. And um, for what it's worth, I thought she should never have been found guilty on mm. the evidence at the trial. Mm. Uh, and so did everybody, really, apart from the jury.
2: Well, I think Tanya said uh, when we were talking to her that it really was Australia's first trial by media. And yeah. I think to this day, a lot of people think that you—you you, know—you hit the nail on the head. Everybody just thought, "Well, you can't behave like that. She must be guilty." And mm. she was just an awkward, you know, yeah, uh, awkward. situations, and, and that exacerbated things.
0: Yeah. One of what the do things you think? Did... Uh, go ahead. No, go on. Go on, Leah. Do you think? Do you think her uh,
1: her religion, that being a Seventh Day Adventist, had anything to do with her demeanor?
0: Oh, I couldn't say. Uh, it had it, it had a lot to do with the prejudice that she was she suffered under, right. because people jumped mm. on the fact that she was a Seventh Day Adventist equals weirdo <laughs> equals killer. <laughs> right. Well, that's how the equation works. When yeah, when you've yeah. got a witch hunt, yeah, I mean you can add up things very quickly, and then yeah. you're you're on a stake. That's <laughs> that's you know that's what the law is all about. That's mm. what the rule of law is all about is stopping that and preventing that, which is why we have all these enshrined protections and safeguards that people these days are getting a bit sick and tired of. But let me remind you that they're there for good reason. They're there to prevent witch hunts. They're there to prevent populists having their day and then finding out it was wrong. So, yeah, being a Seventh-day Adventist, her husband was an actual pastor. Uh, People started telling stories about that religion having something to do with it and oh, it's mm. pathetic. But that's how man can, that's how, that's how we behave.
1: Mm. So you said, uh, you said it was all downhill from there, John. How did that experience shape you and the rest of your legal career?
0: Well, it was obviously it was, you know, I was smart enough to realize it was the best apprenticeship in the world, mm. you know, and I wasn't intent on doing criminal law at the beginning of it. Uh, ha- having done my law degree in Melbourne Uni, I took a bit of an interest in uh, land and land rights. I thought I might take. I, w- I knew I was coming back to the territory, so I knew I would be interested in the Aboriginal thing because that interested me from day one. And I think you know a lot of that's to do with being European. You know, because I didn't really—I said earlier—I didn't really fancy Australia. I didn't emigrate here. There's no way in the world if I would have ever considered emigrating to Australia in 1980 when I ended up here. I didn't really fancy it from what I knew, which was very limited. I mean, I knew nothing really, but there was the Ayers Rock, Sydney Harbour Bridge, beautiful, the the Opera House, stunning. You know, those sails, those nuns' hats, um, cricket. Un, un unusual for a Scottish guy, I, I took a great interest in love of cricket. And so I was I, I fell in love with the Australian cricket team because they used to belt the hell out of England. <laughs> so uh, any, anybody a, that does that... It's a
2: good enough I, reason.
0: It was a great reason, but it was a great side. And I learned cricket when I was about 14 or 15. I, I went to that school who actually did cricket. Mm. And I, I played it, but I was hopeless. Um, and they played rugby, which I played and I, I wasn't bad at rugby, but I didn't like rugby. I was, you know, it was because of that grammar school thing. Mm. But I did, I used to skip school and uh, instead of going to school, I'd stay at home and I'd watch the test match and listen to Richie Beno <laughs> and Jim Laker. And I learned cricket by, by that because wow. you know, I, I wasn't brought up with it. And, and it was really weird for a Scottish guy to take an interest in it. But after a while, I really did learn it and appreciate it and loved it. And I loved Ian Chapel, I loved Dennis Lilly, Jeff Thompson,
3: mm.
0: uh, all of that stuff. So that, that was one thing I liked about Australia. But apart from that, not much. Uh, so you were asking me about how it shaped uh, my, my career in the law. I don't know how I got back to Australia. Um, help me, Leon.
1: Well, I mean, you uh, obviously uh, finished up there. You, came, you you know you're working in the territory. You were interested yeah, in the oh Aboriginal Yeah, 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 I was letters. interested
0: in I was interested in Aborigines. That was the other point. Well, the only thing that I did notice about Australia, apart from bridges and cricket,
3: hmm.
0: was this Aboriginal thing. You know, because you learn that at school when you're a kid. Like, that there's this ancient civilization of people that lived on this continent for like forever that uh, were disturbed by Captain Cook and all these merry men. the English again. Oh, there was a few Scots there. Let's not, let's be honest. (laughs) Let's not blame the English for everything. But, you know, and I I knew nothing about Aborigines, obviously. But I I, I think I was like most people intrigued that uh, this was a civilization older than any other. Uh, and then, of course, you learn about what happened to them. Uh, so that, that interested me. And once I was in the territory, my wife was an ESL teacher. She was from Melbourne, but she came up here as a young woman and worked for three years and lived over on Melville Island on Snake Bay. Mm. So when I met her and we had our relationship, she was teaching me stuff about Teelees and Aboriginals. Wow. And I was all ears. I was interested. You know, I wanted to. Mm. So. I think I knew as a lawyer that I would go into that area because it was interesting, and it, but I think I was more inclined to go into land rights for no great reason. But then once I saw the greatest show on earth with Ian Barker and cross-examining and all this sort of stuff, I
3: was—I
0: mm-hmm. I, I luckily scored a job. Prosecutions offered me a job where Tanya was working, so I worked there for five years. But you, what, what was this period, John? Well, that was from, I got admitted in 87. Right. So from 87 to 92, I worked as a Crown prosecutor, um, which was a wide array. I mean, you know what the territory's like now, but even then it was even more incredible to expose you and give you experiences that were beyond your wildest. And mm-hmm. I mean, I ended up, I was prosecuting murder trials within five years. Um and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was very challenging and interesting and all of that. And then, then I went to where I knew I was always going to go by this stage because I'd seen the lie of the land and I knew I was going to Aboriginal Legal Aid because that's what I wanted to do. That's why that was, that was a given. And I went there for five years. I was soliciting charge there uh, from 97, no, 92 yes. to 97. Mm -hmm. And that was amazing. uh, Defending murder trials, you know, I defended eight women charged with murder (laughs) in the five years I was there. I was just looking at it uh, last night to try and get my head around what I was going to say. But I I went through them all, and some of them, one of them, went to the High Court of Australia. So the exposure was amazing. The experience was amazing. It was, you know, it was eye-opening, gobsmacking, you name it. but and it was—it's tragic and it's bad and it's nowhere near good enough. And really, the point that has to be made thirty years later is it's worse now. Wow! Significantly worse now than it was when I was there.
1: Mm, and why, that is is that, a, why
0: is that? Jones? Why is that, John? Why? Well, everything's worse. <laughs> okay. But, but, but why, why is why, is, why is everything it? is worse? Well. There are a lot of reasons, Leon, you know? There are a lot of reasons uh, why the world is, in my opinion, currently in a state of collapse. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about a gradual 30-year descent. I'm talking about a gradual descent, uh, and then in the last five to 10 years, fasten your seatbelts, don't bother fastening your seatbelts, it's all over. Mm-hmm. And that's my view. And in the last five years, the legal system that I've worked in my entire life, and to a large degree representing Aboriginal people who constitute 80% of this legal system, my opinion now is it's not fit for purpose. It's a wreck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's became that in my life. I've witnessed it. I've bore witness to uh, chronic deterioration and standards, and the efficacy, and you name it, due process uh, in the territories. Two words: you d- you don't see much due process in this jurisdiction anymore, and that's terrible. And and that's one of the reasons why we have an ever increasing Aboriginal imprisonment rate. I mean, it was outrageous. 25, 27 years ago, when they called the Royal Commission into deaths in custody, it's now double what it was then, despite the fact that we uncovered it and made 300 odd recommendations. And yet, 20 odd years later, it's double, it's worse. Mm-hmm. And it's across the board. So it's, uh, that's, that's, uh, I mean, you've asked me why. One of the things that I noticed almost early on from having been in the House and Royal Commission is I noticed that to my surprise, instead of improving, which is what I assumed an institution like the law was duty bound to do, instead of improving, it didn't. And in fact, then I started noticing it was doing the opposite. Not much, but slightly. And those things continued in a, in a drift rather than a descent. But it continued. And uh, look, a lot of it is to do, a lot of it lies at the usual explanation for everything, which is money, budgetary restraints. I've written an article just recently which says that jurists now are managers. They're not jurists. They, they, They run the list. It's all about efficiency and getting through it as quickly as possible, as efficiently as possible. Watch that word efficiency
3: Mm. because
0: it doesn't really sit well with justice. And these things have happened in our lifetime. Our generation has not just watched it, we've done it. And we've done it even by watching it because bystanders have a level of responsibility. You don't just have perpetrators and victims in life. You have bystanders. And bystanders have responsibility as well.
1: Mm. Wow! So, your your comments uh, are you, is, that, is that based on your work with the uh, the Aboriginal legal system um, and
0: an Aboriginal of incarceration? Of course, that's what it's of based course. on. Of right. course, Of course, but it's not just based on the incarceration levels. What happens in modern-day society? You probably noticed is there's a lot of things that are symptoms of uh, a society that's uh, entering its last chapter, mm. which I believe is where we're at now. And I don't think we can turn this around. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of indicia. I mean, how could I? How could I put? It? I mentioned the Royal Commission, the Muirhead one, which was in eighty-nine, ninety, right? We What happens is we discover things that are terrible and then we discover why they're terrible and who's responsible, but then we don't do anything about it. And what we do, all of us, and it's always been a danger for the human race, is we forget history so easily. And if you forget history, you don't do anything about anything. And, you know, philosophers have told us this forever. And I actually believe that we're we're in a period now where we are surrounded by things which are palpably absurd. And we don't even appreciate the level of absurdity they are. I mean, one example that comes to mind clearly is Donald Trump as the president of the United States of America.
2: Oh my gosh, exactly who I was thinking of as you were speaking.
0: Yeah, but I mean, that's real. And him digging in is as is, is predictable as an aeroplane without wings. Mm. That was on the cards from day one. Especially if it was going to be a close result. Now this guy I mean, if that's not absurd surreal if that is not the best evidence telling you that your democracy is all be it finished, then you don't know what day is. You really don't. Mm. And we don't because we don't appreciate Voltaire very famously said, those who make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Now, it's a pretty smart guy, Voltaire, one of the, the founding fathers of the Enlightenment in the 18th century. And what he was meaning there was that when you get to a stage where you're not even noticing that Donald Trump is a bad, bad man, And if he's the president of America, we've got something seriously wrong. If you're not appreciating that effectively and really, then it won't be long before you're doing things that you wouldn't believe possible. And that's how it works. Mm -hmm. Mass graves are dug and men like you and I are standing over them with rifles. That's how we drift into tyranny. Ask any European Jewish person. Ask any Jewish person. Ask anybody that knows anything about European history. It's the same thing. You don't, you don't, you don't, you don't suddenly become a tyranny. Hitler was voted in. Hitler was very popular. And we know what he did. And we know that lots of people didn't have any problem with it, as well as joining in doing it. So, if you don't remember history, if you don't learn from history, then it's it's too easy for us to repeat it. And I'm 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 calling it out now, and I've been trying to call it out for the best part of five years. That this I'm just pointing to my own workplace, but I'm, I, I look around the world and I look around federal parliament. I look at our democracy, and as far as I'm concerned, it's got about as much in common with democracy as it should be as a bowl of soup. It really does not produce representative democracy like it's supposed to. And well, why, do we, you say we, that, why do you say that, John? Well, like representative democracy in Australia doesn't work. Democracy, well, let me say this what's the biggest problem in the world,
1: Leon? Climate change.
0: You bet. And do we know that's the biggest problem? The people of the world? Yes. We do. And there's not much to debate about it because 90% plus of the scientists have told us what the problem is and what's caused it, right? Okay? Mm -hmm. They've also told us how to solve it, right? So not only do we know the problem, we know how to solve it. And our prime minister waves coal in the federal parliament. That's how our democracy actually works. Our democracy is actually working to the detriment of the people that it's supposed to be serving, which is the opposite of representative democracy. Mm. And that's crept up on us. Okay, we, on. How, how How could we... What is the excuse for us not fixing what could be the end of the planet when we uh, know there, how to do it?
1: There is no excuse at all. But, but let me... I, I, I've listened to you uh, uh, talk about Aboriginal uh, the Aboriginal issues here in the territory, the uh, the Trump issue, and now federal democracy, and uh, I, I just want to push back on some things, not necessarily because I um, I have a strong view o- o- on on any alternative uh, to what you're talking about, but I have tried really hard over the last four years in particular to try to understand why people do the things that th- they do now let's let's start with um, the with federal uh, with, with federal uh, Parliament and democracy and the waving of coal and all that mm, uh, yeah. we had we had Malcolm Temple on the podcast a, a few months ago um, I, I will declare my hand uh, as I did then I'm a big fan. Um, uh, because I believe in what he was doing in relation to climate change, in relation to gay rights and all that, uh, and and amongst a myriad of other things. But the reason why he was deposed was not because of uh, democracy. It was because big business, in the form of Rupert Murdoch and and the uh, media, yeah. were able mm. to hold a part of his party to ransom, and that is what created the situation that we're in. I mean, the only reason Scott Morrison won the last election was because of Queensland, and why? Because of Queensland because he was against um, doing anything about climate change because it would cost jobs in Queensland, Mm. right? Now let's pivot to the US because I hold very similar views to you, John, about Trump, but I actually don't think that is particularly helpful in in, in trying to find a way forward. So um, I'm currently having a very uh, interesting conversation uh, through text with the son of um, a very, very good friend of mine who is a young immigrant to Australia uh, who is uh, not Caucasian but holds some very strident views about, about Trump, as in support of Trump and, the, and Trumpism. And rather than sort of fob him off as being stupid and young, I thought, okay, no, let me just, let me f- force myself to go down this rabbit hole and try to unpick this situation because, you know, you talked about having responsibility and you talked about being a bystander. Well, it's very easy to be a bystander. It's very hard, John, to go down a rabbit hole like that and start to unpick those issues and, and, and apply the discipline to do that and also to allow yourself to actually feel and understand what those people are must be feeling and understanding now. It's very quick for the left and, and even for the centre to say, "Well, you know what? You can't, you, you, you know, you, you can't unpick stupid." But the truth of the matter is, you know, seventy-one odd million people voted for Trump. You bet. And, and I and I do not believe that seventy-one million people in yeah. the US are stupid. Right. So, what is this all about? Now, I through just a bit of serendipity. I um, watched a a YouTube clip today of a PBS, and we know where PBS stands on most things, right, Uh, public broadcasting um, to the U.S., uh, a show called The United States, The Great Divide. And they are going through and they're interviewing various people. And I think this show came out about 10 months ago, but I didn't know about it until this evening. And I watched half an interview with Ann Coulter, who I'm not sure if you know who she is. She's a fairly um commentator, right. uh, very much, uh, very much. Uh, well, she supports Trump, but uh, not in the way that most people do. Right. But I, you know, what was really amazing, John, was to listen to her articulate her views, and it became readily apparent to me that the reason why so many of the U.S. were drawn to Trump as opposed to the Republican Party, as opposed to anything to the whites. They were Mm. drawn to Trump because he was saying something that resonated with them back in 2016, and that was migration. Uh, It's just um, uncontrolled migration from Mexico or through Mexico to the U.S., Right. Now, what really intrigued me about, about her, her commentary about that was she was saying, well, look, uh, you know, other countries seem to have got it right in relation to migration. But we don't. You know, we just it, it, it is just a it, it's just unmitigated and, it, and we have no control over it. We have no control of our borders. And, you know, I'm reminded of what uh, John Howard did back in 2000 you know, yeah. when, when he said what he said. And I think about our, our own migration system and how we have, uh, you know, the, the, the points-based system for uh, um, determining whether people qualify to come to Australia.
0: Yeah. And I
1: don't think the US does have, have anything similar to that. Right. And so they've got this huge, you know, migration that comes through un, unchecked. It, it drives down wages. She said, it, you know, I was listening to her, John, and I'm not kidding. Mm. There were things that she was saying that the left would absolutely agree with. She mm. was saying it drives wages down. It puts people, um, you know, it, it creates unemployment uh, for, for, for people because, you know, there are basically no jobs. Um, but then she also said that when Obama came in in, in 2008, straight after the GFC or, you know, during the GFC, there were no consequences for Wall Street. Now, I can't think of a single person on the left side of politics that wouldn't agree with that. And so what the heck, right? Mm. All of us, you know, why is it that, um, you know, um, profits are uh, are, are for the rich but the the losses are are, are nationalised? No. No. So it was all this built-up, you know, p- uh, pent-up frustration with politicians, yeah. with the system, as, as you just talked about there. Mm. And, and that's what caused people to just flock to this, you know, to, 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 this, um, to this guy. Mm. Uh, and, you know, Ann Coulter is not a stupid person. By any stretch, yeah. she can see Trump for what he is. But, you know, they, they asked her a question about um, about Trump bringing those four women that, uh, that um, Bill Clinton supposedly assaulted during his time uh, to the debate. All right. She had with Hillary, right? Yeah. And she said, I thought it was brilliant because it was the day after Trump was uh, done for the for the Hollywood tapes, uh, I forget what they were called. Uh, the Is this um, when he
0: was on the bus talking the about one. grabbing women. Exactly, exactly.
1: So yeah. the day after that, he's going into a debate and he brings in these four women. And what he was really doing there was saying, you know, the double standards of the media. So I am not a right-wing fascist. John, but what I'm trying to do (laughs) is to get an understanding of why people think the way they think. And there is some legitimacy to the way people think. There are some serious issues with the the, the centre and the left of of politics, I think, that really ought to be um, a bit more scrutinised. And I think that's what's happening in the US now is this is coming under attack and it's forcing people to be a little bit more circumspect, a little bit more introspective. And I'm not sure that that's a bad thing, John, to be quite honest with you.
0: Hmm. Well, I don't know. um, Your observations, uh, I I agree with largely. uh, But it doesn't detract from the point of my observation, which is that we're on the way out i don't think this is a matter of uh, scrutinizing why Trump voters a voter for him, Is it because of immigration or whatever. The world has changed, and and one of the things I think this emphasizes the point I made earlier about how we don't learn from history. Another thing is that we we don't notice we're all frogs in the boiling saucepan, and we've all become dead almost. We haven't noticed how we have changed as a society and as individual human beings. People are different now to what they were when I was 24, when I was 22 when I arrived here. It's a different culture, it's a different ethos. We are living in a a boom of individualization, which is a massive, massive feature. We are generally more selfish, self-centered, less compassionate, less altruistic. And we're encouraged, our culture has encouraged that over a period of at least two generations now. And so people are different. They're not, uh, it's not 1979, it's not 89. People are different. But there are similarities with the populism of Trump and the populism of Hitler in the sense that they appeal to highly dissatisfied uh, demography, people who are uh, genuinely jacked off for good reason, whether it's because they were screwed by the Treaty of Versailles uh, back in 1919 uh, or whether they're unemployed and there's too much immigration. People are dissatisfied. People are seriously jacked off with the democratic process, which I've said, in my view, is finished. And, and, and they're jacked off with it because they know it's finished. If for no other reason, they are sick and tired of being lied to. Truth, over the same period, has been seriously corroded by the way our society has gone. Truth is no longer the paramount virtue that's no better demonstrated by the President of the United States of America who lies out the back of his teeth like nobody's business.
2: Mm. I've got so, another example for Pete, you here at home. Yes,
0: come in, Pete.
2: Because I'll tell you what, I'm listening to you two blokes and I'm thinking, well, uh, tonight's monologue is sponsored by Ward Keller, which I appreciate greatly.
3: <laughs> Sorry. I'm,
2: no, no, no. I, I, I've, I found it fascinating, to be honest. And I keep thinking of one person because Trump is the root of all evil, as everyone seems to think. But I keep thinking of one person here in Australia, as both of you were talking, and that is Daniel Andrews in Victoria. It staggers me that this man can have any degree of popularity. It staggers me that he can be pulled in front of a commission and lie through his teeth, along with every other senior member of his cabinet and his government, Mm. That 800 people have died due to their incompetence, mm. and the man's popularity rating is still going up. It, mm. I, I, it's like the world has gone nuts and nobody's realized it.
0: Well, you're right about the last observation. The world, the world is collapsing, <laughs> and uh, it, it's, it really is a matter of time. There's wobbles everywhere. And I'll, I'll tell you what we're good at not only uh, ignoring history, uh, recent and general. Uh, the great German philosopher Hegel said that if there's one thing we have learned from history, it's that we don't learn from history. But another thing that we're really good at in these situations is denialism. And we are living right now in an age of denialism, whether it's to do with climate change or uh, our democracy or our legal system. I am surrounded by people who are uh, in various degrees of denialism brought about by various different motives, whether they're throwing things under the carpet or whether they're ignoring things. Uh, we've, we've all seen it. We're all busy. We live in this busy world, which apparently is good. Uh, it's all good. Remember that expression? It actually <laughs> means it's all effed, in my opinion. It's all good. Uh, how are you doing, Leon? Busy? Oh, yes, I'm busy. Equals... It's all good. I'm a success, blah, blah, blah. Well, being busy is no good. We're, and, and a lot of being busy is pretense as well. I mean, I'm surrounded by people running around being busy doing nothing. Hmm. And it's, it's, it's become a, a, a feature of our society. And it's another reason why it allows us to ignore the fact that there's a great big tsunami coming right towards us Uh, I'm I'm too big, I'm anxious, and I bet you are, because you're in debt. Yeah, I'm in debt. My credit card's gone nuts, and I don't know if I'm going to be in work next week because I'm on a zero contract, and God knows what's going to happen with a mortgage. Everybody's in that zone as well. Not everybody, but a lot of people are in that. There are no shortage of reasons why people are suffering from anxiety, despair, depression. I mean, it's the nose on your face. You know, I, I was saying to you like 25 years ago just look at the state of Australia now. We have got huge mental health problems, depression increasing, suicide increasing, obesity, yes. autism is a thing that's going nuts. We've got depression, anxiety disorders, all hosts of mental disorders. Um, a very unhappy country. And we've got, um, and and, and another symptom that we've got is the massive gap, ever growing, between the small group of ridiculously rich, and the ever-growing numbers of unwashed underclass. And history tells us that whenever a civilization falls over, there is invariably common denominators, and one of them is usually an environmental crisis, where the Mayans have been chopping down too many trees in Mexico, and it's put pressure on everything. And also an indicative is, you, is the gap between the sick rich and the, the, the large number of dispossessed and poor. And, and we're there now compared with what we were only 25 years ago. And it's astonishing. It's happened in our life. I mean, it's a very exciting period of history to be in right now. Because it's like you've just jumped on the board and it's went from four foot to nine foot. And there's rocks and sharks everywhere. That's, that's, how, that's how I feel about right now. It's, I really do.
1: John, can I just ask you to uh, to put your, your iPad down a bit because I can't see your face anymore. Oh, and I haven't sorry. been able to see it for the last <laughs> a little while. We're not getting much expression right. out of your forehead. <laughs> you're not missing anything.
0: You're not missing anything.
1: Oh, we're getting bored looking at the fans,
0: <laughs> Sorry, forgive me. Hmm. Anyway, um, perhaps you should ask a question before we solve the problems of the world. Although we can go well, on forever, I, I, I'm, not I'm happy.
1: I do want to ask a question um, because we, we talked about Trump, we talked about uh, democracy. Uh, yes. What we haven't talked about is the Aboriginal issues in the Northern yes. Territory. Now, John, you're very close to these issues. I am not, right? But where I do find myself exposed to Aboriginal issues is I feel that there is a silent majority of Territorians that are... Fed up to the back teeth with Aboriginal issues, particularly as they relate to housing um, and accommodation on traditional lands, and it, it goes something like this. And I actually spoke to someone yesterday who, you know, because I've never been to uh, an Aboriginal community before, so uh, I, I just. I, the opportunity came up and I, I said to this person i said okay so 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 you're on an aboriginal community now yes i said uh, so what's it like uh, and you know um she used the word shithole, right and i said why and she said, because she just just there's rubbish everywhere it's a mess uh, the houses are constructed in such a way so that they can 't be destroyed um, and they 're forever going back and fixing things and, and i 'm trying to comprehend this, John because i i 'm trying to understand how you fix something like this because it doesn 't seem to be fixable in my
0: mind mm. well um one of the ways we Western people look at things because of our upbringing is if there's something broken, uh, we, we want to fix it. And the sooner the better, and the more effective the better, whether that's with a tablet or a drill or an invention. You know, that's the, the Western way. Uh, and I, I think it's uh, what I've learned over the years working with aboriginal people and observing uh aboriginal life in in various different areas whether it's traditional way out in the bush or in in a, in a mixed way in the regional centers or in Darwin is that there is we 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 need to stop thinking like that and appreciating that problems such as housing uh, and the like, uh, are a consequence of what's happened in the interface of our civilization and their civilization. And it's not a ma- to me, it's not a matter of fixing it, because more often than not, that desire to fix it means... It, it usually sits next door to assimilation, um, As you could understand rationally, you know, fix your house up, uh, tidy up the rubbish, put it in the bin, and then it's be like us, you know, that kind of approach. And that's perfectly understandable. I've, I've often thought that. But what I think Australians need to think more of, and many have, and many do, and many have over the years, is, and sure, it involves being. Uh, more compassionate and more understanding and and more caring. But it goes back to what I was saying earlier when I observed from Europe what was a, an ancient culture civilization which had been here for longer than we can even imagine. Seriously. And we should do ourselves a favor and just think about how, you know, we go on about our father and our grandfather and maybe our great-grandfather. But we, the way our, our history works is we don't really know much more after that other than what the history books tell us, as opposed to uh, a completely different way of living with the land, on the land, with each other, spiritually, intellectually, mechanically and the like. It was so different. And, you know, lo and behold, they managed to survive through magic, genius, uh, resilience, all of those things, none of which, of course, we really appreciate or ever appreciated. Terra Nullius, Terra Nullius, Terra Nullius. When we arrive and look, and still to this day, it resides, when we look, we see uh, unworthy, subhuman, we think didn't own land, didn't invent the wheel, didn't wear clothes, snot coming out of the nose, take the land, shoot them, don't even worry about it. Now, that, that that is the real history of this country. And when you despair about people living in conditions like this, just try and remember that they're not like us in this sense, that up until we arrived, which in the scheme of things is literally three minutes ago, three minutes ago, up until we arrived, they were here doing what they were doing to whatever end, spiritually, philosophically, laterally. And we H-bombed it. We H-bombed it. We took, we looked upon them as if they were lesser than animals. And from that day on, we have stolen murdered, raped, treated them as subhuman. And every day of their life, they have been informed directly or indirectly that they really don't belong in this place that has become Australia. Now, that's not like Glasgow in the 70s. That's not like the third world now. That's like an experience that no other civilization can survive, yet they have. So their way of dealing with existence in this society is very problematical. And things like housing problems and socioeconomic low indicia are only part of it. And, you know, to me, Leon, we mentioned the biggest problem, which is climate change. I think the second biggest problem for Australians is working out our relationship with Aboriginal people so that we can improve the situation that it's got to now. And, and it's not a fix. It's not a solution. It's not a tablet. It's a state of mind. It's about hearts and minds uh, looking at it in a different way, which includes knowing the full history. You know, on the eleventh of the eleventh, I was driving into work, and and it was the eleventh of the eleventh at eleven a.m., and they shut down the radio. And for some reason, and it was very poignant, and it was moving, just like it is on Anzac Day, as you would experience. And for some reason, I I thought, wouldn't it be? This is so moving. This how if you can just shut up for a minute and think and reflect about something that's important, that can change things. And I, my thought was instinctively wouldn't it be good if we had this to and maybe the 26th of january is the day to do it for all australians to just stop and think about the aboriginals and their experience and what happened to them uh, at the hands of our forebearers or not our forebearers wouldn't it be good if we lived in this continent with them a continuum of them joining with them loving them, understanding them, respecting them, wanting to know their language, wanting to be with them, wanting to learn from them. And that's all about an attitude of mind as to how we relate to Aborigines. Whereas we look with disgust. We look, we're we're, we're fed up. You use that expression, fed up. Fed up. Leon, it's not our place to be fed up. We should think deeper than that. Really. And, and I think Australians find it difficult because they're more directly responsible for something they know, which we've managed to hide, which is a horror show. It's genocide. We tried to get rid of them all. We really did. And it just failed. And again, that illustrates their magic, their resilience, their beauty. And there is this beauty. Look at their art. Look at the way Look at the way they conduct themselves while Donald Trump conducts himself. Look at the way they conduct themselves while Big Brother's on television. Look at the way they conduct themselves while we watch breakfast television. What's so good about us? What's so bad about us compared with them? There is so much to embrace. And, and it's really about us changing our hearts and minds. And we can do it. But we need leadership. We need Scott Morrison to put the call away. And and go to Yerikala and go to Snake Bay and Yindamu and hug Aboriginal ladies and say we want this country to behave ourselves. And uh, we want our country to acknowledge everything that happened, truth telling. That's where it can begin.
1: John, I respect what you're saying. Um, it's very poignant but I'm having trouble digesting it. And and not because I hate Aboriginal people or I don't want to do the things that you're saying. I think a lot of what you're saying uh, has been tried, perhaps not as successful as you might like. But the reality is what you seem to be suggesting is that we live in one country with two different systems. And I just don't know how that... Well, I haven't said anything work. as a lie. I haven't but, said but anything else
0: that's what it feels like, though, John. Well, that, that, that's your mind. Does it feel like that for you, Pete?
2: Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really good question.
0: Um, because I've I, I quite... I never was, mentioned two systems. I never... I mentioned one, if anything. I, mean, I mentioned one country with a history. That's all. I'm not talking about two different systems. And if there are two different systems, I don't mind. That doesn't scare me. I mean, you know what I think is one of the most incredible features of Australian society as a European is the fact that Aboriginal people, some Aboriginal people are still able in this 21st century, very advanced, great country to live pretty close to a traditional way I think that's a jewel in the crown of this nation, for it to be able to encourage that, to like it, to respect it. I think that's wonderful.
1: So why do we have the huge amounts of incarceration of Aboriginal people?
0: (laughs) Well, I don't want to be cheeky, but why don't you know that? You've been living in this jurisdiction for how many years? You've been living on their land. Why don't you know the answer to that question, Leon? Why doesn't it interest you sufficiently to discover what's happened, what's went wrong with the first Australians? Is,
1: well, is it,
0: because, I, I, you, is it mean, because you don't have an interest in it?
1: No, I've read about Australian history. I'm very aware of it. I think most people do, and I think most people do, John, actually uh, understand and appreciate what happened to, uh, you know, Aboriginal Australians. It's, it's actually, not, for me, it's very similar to the argument that, um, that I hear from these, these Trump supporters, you know, about Black Lives Matter. And that yeah, is, you know, yeah, they, yeah, say, yeah. they say all lives matter. They say, well, you, you know, we do feel guilty about what happened to, to African-Americans. We do feel guilty about slavery. But you know, we want to move on. We want to, you know, we want to get past this. But the left keeps telling us, "No, you've got to go back and apologise. You've got to heap ash on your head and tear your clothes." I mean, uh, you know, I'm uh, obviously exaggerating, but uh, you know, people want reconciliation, and but but they also want to know how we can progress. And I, I get the feeling from you that progress doesn't necessarily mean fixing things and moving on. It may very well mean that, um, uh, you know, we do have to live with two different systems. I mean, the reason why I, the two different systems came into my mind, John, was when we were talking mm. to John Elfrink, and John Elfrink was talking about various things, and uh, and he spoke about Aboriginal people with the same sort of um, uh, passion that you did uh, or, or you had, and, but he did say at one point in time, Leon and Pete, I, you know, I draw, the, I draw the line at things like penile bifurcation. You know, that's just not something that's going to happen under my watch. And, I mean, how, how do you feel about some of these Well, Le- Leon,
0: Leon, that's a very easy statement to make. Who wouldn't draw the line at that. We all would. That's a cheap shot.
1: Well, I'm, that, that's what he said.
0: So, yeah, well, you know, I agree with him. That's nothing. I mean, that is irrelevant to what I said, Leon, with the greatest respect.
1: Well, explain. I'm trying to understand. Well,
0: well, I mean, you're going on about Black Lives Matter and covering themselves in ash. Police keep shooting black people in America, Leon. Haven't you noticed that? That's why they're on the streets, not because they're dragging out stuff that's ancient history. It's real. I mean,. You're black, I'm not. Um, so it's difficult for me to really assert with as much uh, vim what it's like to be discriminated against.
1: You can, though, John.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, black people don't. Have, <laughs> You're Scottish people, for goodness yeah. sake. <laughs> well, no, I, black people don't have a, a monopoly on fighting injustice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Just because they're the victims of it, that can't prevent others from opposing it. Um, (laughs) But look, I'm not talking about two different worlds. I'm not talking about, I mean, to say that there's some cultural practices like that that are terrible, whoopee duck. I mean, who's talking about going back to that anyway? No one. That is just a right wing a uh, cheap shop It really is. I, I, I'm not even going to condescend to that. That's politics. I'm talking about more fundamental. I'm actually talking about embracing. No, nobody. You said earlier we've tried that and it hasn't worked. Mm. Leon, We haven't tried it. So what would we've look done? Like? The opposite. We've done what, the opposite. John,
1: what, what would your world look? What would your world look like, John? If, if you were, you know, if you had the power to change things, what would your world look like?
0: The world, or just the Aboriginal issue? The Aboriginal issue. Yes. yes. I, I think um, being realistic, we're on the we're almost on the verge of it becoming impossible. However, I'm I, I, I'm a person that believes in hope. I'm a positive person. I seek to improve, uh, and so forth. And so I I. Agree with the endeavours at the moment on the statement from the heart, which is a, a national political suggestion, which has not really got too far, at least from the liberal, the liberal government. I think Labour agree with it. So I would I would agree, realistically and practically, with supporting that call for uh, the three limbs of it, which are the voice to Parliament, the the truth telling which I think is the most important thing. And that uh, forgive me, I've forgotten the third uh, aspect of it. Uh, but anyway, that's a political card or, a, or, or an option which is out there at the moment. And I, I, I support that. So in that regard, that's what I would be going for. Because uh, this country can go nowhere, in my opinion, unless it mends this birth scar. It really can't. It can't. It's, it's, this, to me, it's like a childish country in many ways. It's like an adolescent. And, and, and part of that is it, it, it can't face its upbringing or its, its true history. So you're talking and I, about I, really think that, I really think that most Australians, once they actually learnt the real history, mm-hmm. and, and the, the reality is most Austra- Australians don't. Most mm-hmm. Australians haven't seen aboriginals. And they don't get taught at school and they get taught other things. If we just had a normal curriculum at school, for instance, in primary and secondary, which involved the teaching of, I think they call them the, the frontier wars, whatever you want to call it, massacres, whatever, what happened, the truth, the history, just like we learn about the Holocaust for good reason, because we can't allow these kind of things to occur again. So those kind of measures, And I really believe, because I believe in humankind, that if people knew the true history of this country and the effect that it's had on aboriginals, which is why there are so much difficulties in their interface with us, uh, we'd have a much better prospect of living together. It's not going to be easy. It's the hardest thing in the world for a colony to live with its vanquished indigenous you, you go anywhere new zealand south america north america it's it's a very difficult thing it's not like the european upbringing which doesn't involve that but this country probably goes bottom of the report card compared with other countries that have dealt with it better or less bad new zealand's a good example you know but it's it's again i go back to one of the things that Is a real problem is truth. I've mentioned this already. I'm talking about truth telling, but truth has become so corroded. It's become so. It's not a virtue, whereas it's central. If you don't have truth, it's all over.
2: Hmm. John, um, in order for any of what you're describing to occur, yeah. You know, it it would seem patently obvious that uh, politicians and leaders would need to be involved and need to
0: drive You bet. You bet.
2: Is there anybody or any bodies that you can think of or name who could lead that process? Because I don't see it in my Mm. world.
0: Yeah, no, Luke, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm in the same world as you, Pete. And I guess we're all in the same world, but yeah, no, I mean, and, and, and look, one of the problems of society collapsing generally, which is the point I made earlier, has been a lack of leadership per se. Uh, we are collapsing because, I should say this, uh, I've observed, in my opinion, a moral collapse or a moral decline. We have been in this moral, ethical decline for a good generation and more, and one of the reasons that's allowed to occur is that we've been short on leadership. People Mm -hmm. that are prepared to stick a flag in the hill and say that or draw a line in the sand and say, no, that's wrong. It might be popular, but it's not right. And Mm -hmm. if you vote me out, so be it. But we can't go that way. Now, we our leaders should have been doing that because the majority are not always right. And that's the magic of democracy. Democracy is about... Protecting minorities more than allowing majorities to have their way—that is the essence. That's the magic of of democracy. So we have lack leadership per se, and to ask you, answer your specific, I, I don't see much of it. Aboriginal leadership is understandably wasted. Uh, there are some great people, great soldiers that have achieved a lot, but I don't really see. But I, I would like to, I would like to see the Prime Minister of Australia like Malcolm Turnbull when he was the Prime Minister of I would love the, the Prime Minister of Australia to say, right, okay, wait, watch this one. The Minister for Aboriginal Affairs is now going to be the second most important portfolio in this country, second to Treasury, because this issue is so important. And I'm going to get the best man or woman or women or men to have that portfolio. And we are going to lead from the front in a, wherever you want to call it, reconciliation or the truth process or whatever. But it's not forthcoming. And the reason it's not forthcoming is they won't do it because they think they will lose the election if they do. Mm. And I think if they did it properly, like real leaders, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Have you, what's more, for,
1: have you ever thought about running, John?
0: No, no, I have, but I would never. Um, it, I just, the system is so, uh, it's so wasted now. Maybe when I was a younger man, uh, it might have been something. Uh, but now it, it, it's just carnage. I'd just be walking into. Nothing less. That's what I believe about our democracy at the moment. It's just, not, it's, it's not there anyway. It's in the, it's in the think tanks behind it. And it's in the corporations that are funding the think tanks. That's how this works. That's why Scott Morrison was waving coal in Parliament. Because he was told to do that, if not directly, indirectly by the people that fund the think tanks that write the script whether it's for Skye or whether it's for him, which is coal and mining and oil. I mean, for God's sake, it's like the tobacco companies 20 years ago. They just hung in, hung in, hung in until eventually they had to accept that guess what? Smoking causes cancer. That was called junk science by then. And that's what's happened here. They're running it, and we know it. I mean, Mm -hmm. I just did that fracking case. This fracking revival is nonsense, absolute nonsense. It's that thing I was getting to earlier. It's an absurdity. The proposition is seriously absurd, and yet it's countenanced by us because News Corp give it to us every day, and they've got 80% of the rubbish that we watch, and they have done such a damage such such damage to this country. One of the main reasons why we have declined in the way that I believe we have has been at the door of News Corp and what they have done to the the, the individual human beings in this society. Why people are off views which are patently absurd and it's because they read it every day, they watch it every day, they listen to it every day, they share it, and I, I've seen people my age who are different now to what they were 10, 15 years ago in the head, and it's just because they've been subjected to this garbage. But
1: did you uh, Did you sign that uh, petition that was going around from
0: uh, um... uh, uh, Yeah, I did. I mean, I did, but to be honest, the Royal Commission, I mean, there was a Royal Commission in London that was bigger than Benham yeah. into News Corp. Mm-hmm. And what happened? he went, he hibernated for a year and came back. The Royal Commission will do nothing. And because Royal Commissions don't have power. I mean, when will we ever learn? You know, a few years ago, I was canvassing for a Royal Commission into the Don Dale situation. I was proposing it. I was arguing for it. And people wiser than me were saying, don't worry about it. Nothing will happen. And they were right. They were dead right. And this is, this is how our democracy works now. People do bad things, really bad things. What was going on in Don Dale in any man's language was not on. And they get caught and nothing happens. And that, look at the Bank Royal Commission. You mentioned earlier, Leon, the GFC. I mean, what has to happen for corporate crime? To be brought to account. I go to court every day and represent Aboriginal kids that steal cars. And what does the judge say before he sends them down? You have to accept responsibility for your actions. Go to jail.
1: Mm.
0: Well, how well, come that? How,
1: you, you won't know. have any disagreement from Ann Coulter, from what I heard today. And she is uh, you know, a right wing media uh, commentator. So it's it's just very interesting. Well, I don't think the left and right are actually as far apart as we might think.
0: Well, I, these issues. whether it's left, right, I don't know. I mean, I'm, how could anybody disagree with it, Leon?
3: Mm-hmm. We are
0: living in absurd times. And I'll tell you what comes next, and it's good news. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because we're human, and inside every one of us, I believe, is a sense of justice, which is one of the reasons why I became a lawyer. Because I've always been interested in justice as a concept. Do you think that it's inside Trump as well? Oh, I think he's got rid of it. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think I, I think it would have been. But yeah, I mean, Trump's a maniac. But I mean, there's lots of that, right? But I do believe that human beings have a sense of justice. Look at your kids. Not fear, Dad. Not fear. They know. So we developed that. And what I'm saying to you is that democracy is redundant. It doesn't work. The levers and the switches are not working anymore. It's not serving the interests of the community anymore. It used to. And it was always described as a better than not worse. It was the best out of a bad bunch. You know, it was always conceded it was imperfect but it it worked. And it worked well up until the last 20, 30 years. So how do we get what we need to happen here, which is climate change? How do we stop emissions? What can we do to stop the continued uh, mining of fossil fuels, burning of fossil fuels, whether it be through fracking or coal mining. How do we actually stop this? Because we know we have to. Now, we can't vote it out because Labour are going to be nervous about Queensland miners and and losing the vote. And we've got already the the Labour guy breaking away. So Labour are not going to stop it. And, And we need to stop it. You need to stop it, Leon. Pete, you need to stop it for your kids. I need to stop it. So how is that going to happen? Well, Despair not, because part and parcel of democracy has always been direct action, civil disobedience. It's always been in the equation. Mm -hmm. It's as relevant to democracy as voting. And when situations get so bad, like Gandhi's India, like the suffragette movement, like Dr. Martin Luther King in the South of America with civil rights and voting rights for black people. When our democracy is not going to deliver justice and fairness and do what is right, then people have to get up off their arse and leave their comfort zone and stop being bystanders and make it happen. And that's it. That's the prognosis, and that's I'm looking at you, Pete. <laughs> I'm not in the same room as you, which is why I wish I was. <laughs> but we have to leave our comfort zone because what that needs to be done. There, there isn't any jubiety about this. Just like women needed to get the vote. You know why men didn't give women the vote? It was because we thought they were not intelligent enough to deal with political issues and complex matters. So they didn't have the intelligence to cast a vote for their elected representative—that was the—that was the rationale for it, mm-hmm. and that was in 1918. Now, how wrong was that? Now, Emily Pankhurst was a very upper-class, middle-class, educated woman who strove for years, decades, with other women who were brave and principled, and lobbied and petitioned and campaigned with men politicians to allow women to be given the vote. And they realized after doing all those mechanisms that were available within the democracy, it wasn't going to work. They weren't going to get the vote. And so they decided to change. They decided to take up civil disobedience. They committed crimes, albeit minor. They smashed windows with bricks. They got arrested. They were charged with criminal damage. They pleaded guilty in the court. They refused to pay the fine. They were imprisoned. They refused to eat when they were in jail. They did all of those things because it was the only way available to achieve what was clearly right. Same with Gandhi in India. He managed to get the British Empire out of there by just peaceful, civil disobedience, intelligence, and principle and integrity. Look at Dr. King. What a hero. What a man. Wouldn't we like him now? Because that's what we need. That's the only way. We are going to prevent climate change and other injustices that are ever growing. So, and I think that will happen. And it's 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 greater Thunberg time, you know, Mm. the Swedish young girl.
2: Yeah, I thought about her before.
0: She's spot on. Mm. She's absolutely spot on. Well, that suggests to me
1: that the future is bright, and uh, in fact, the young people of today are probably far more engaged uh, in a positive way than. Perhaps our generation was, Joe. Sure.
0: Well, our generation have become. That's the issue. We've become bystanders. We've, we've become the materialistic uh, Romans. But um, it's not that optimistic because it's not guaranteed. You don't, you don't get anything from power without a struggle. That's the story of man. You don't get, men didn't get voting rights. I'm going on about women. But remember the Chartist movement and remember the tall puddle martyrs. These men died for getting what was a a basic right. Now, the powers that be, and I'm talking about the establishment now, they're not going to give us it. They never have and they never will, which is the story of struggle, which is the story of man. I'm bringing down your world, Leon.
1: Not at all. Not at all. It's good to have these conversations, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> good to, it's, it's good to think about, uh, you know, what, what uh, other opinions are uh, because I think our, our, all our opinions ought to be shaped by the opinions around us.
0: So. Well, what do you think about the proposition? That how are we going to prevent? what David Attenborough has so graphically told us about, and who could doubt his propositions. How are we going to stop it?
1: I think, uh, look, you know, uh, personally, I feel that things have moved ahead of politics. I mean, look at the yeah. take-up, for example, of, uh, yeah. of, of, uh, of um, solar electricity, yeah. which, uh, yeah. which uh, Peter Gowers uh, sells and, and installs <laughs> and has done for me. Uh, <laughs> Oh. You know, I mean, no one could have, no one in, in none of the politicians could have ever envisaged what that take-up was going to be. Mm. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's come at such a level now that it's, mm. uh, it's problematic mm. because coal-fired generations and and, and other um, uh, fossil fuel uh, generators are, you know, uh, are probably on their way out.
0: And share prices. That's exactly. having its effect. Yeah, yeah. no, no, that's, that's happening. Um, but uh, I think the reality is that uh, more has to happen. It, it's not going yeah. to... The, the coal lobby's not going to go away quietly. They're not going to accede to it, uh, just like they did with tobacco.
3: Hmm.
0: It's interesting that, you know, and, and, and again, that's a more illustration of how democracy is really becoming redundant. For instance, that Indigenous thing about the voice from the 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 heart, mm. I understand that the political leaders, the Indigenous leaders have said, we don't care if we don't get bipartisan support on this because I don't think people really pay as much attention or have as much respect, if any, to our politicians now. And and, and, and that, that drags me back to the, the abuse of truth. I mean, look at the relationship we have with politicians now. I mean, it's... It's nowhere near what it, it, it used to be and what it should be. And and it, it's chronic for good reason.
2: I don't want to sound like a broken record here, but um, having just spent six months in lockdown in Victoria with uh, children oh, home from school, you know, that truth statement, you know, it, it, it couldn't be hitting home harder than it is for me because I was just talking about this with somebody today. You know, I thought the Australian way used to be when you make a mistake, you put up your hand, you own it, you apologise, and everyone goes, all right, well, he or she manned up, as the expression were, and, uh, you know, we'll forgive them for it. But the disgraceful performance in Victoria has been, well, we'll just say we didn't know anything about it, and suddenly everybody will forget about it.
0: Yeah, yeah. well, you see, this is the moral collapse. This is the inability. This this is the moral environment that we're living in now. Politicians can just front up with their fingers in the till, with their fingers amputated in the till, and just say, uh, the the, the mentality is, uh, the culture is, it's tomorrow's sausage wrapper, as in it's a news story. It's a 24-7, ride it through don't hold any ministerial responsibility, don't have any integrity, don't have any honour, don't have any virtue. Remember those words. Now, the, the, these mm. are serious concepts that are, are central to the human condition, and they're redundant now in contemporary democracy. They are redundant. You don't see integrity. You don't see honour. You don't see virtue. You, don't, you see very rarely honesty. You see the opposite. And indeed, the opposite's encouraged and the good virtues are discouraged. This is the society we're in now, which is why I believe it's on the way out. Because it's unsustainable. So, so literally unsustainable.
2: So what's your doomsday prediction, John?
0: Well, in this, remember the Soviet Union? Uh, it fell over in 1989 and they used to say they said it was forever until it was no more (laughs) and that that's what happened in the eastern Bloc. it just became so internally rotten and chronic and without truth there was no truth and everybody knew it and there wasn't a revolution it just got to a stage where it couldn't continue. And perhaps, I know we're not uh, a police state like the the Soviet Union was for, for generations, but perhaps that's going to happen to various aspects of our society. For instance, I live and work in the legal institution, and I can see conceivably that it could fall over. I could see the local court falling over uh, because of the 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 volume and the and the the chaos and the nonsense that goes on in there every day, which is the opposite of due process. I can see that collapsing, falling over, whatever. And then I don't know, I mean it's it's not like, oh I mean that's what happened in the Soviet Union. It just fell over and then things emerged.
2: Mm. I know the Western world was pretty chuffed with itself when, uh, when the Soviet Union fell over. And of course, you know, East and West uh, Berlin reunited and uh, the Czech Republic and, and, and various other you know, countries in that region. Uh, but what you're suggesting is that the, the side they came to was uh, perhaps flawed itself.
0: Well, th- there was a belief that history had ended in 1989 and that capitalism was <laughs> the only thing that could... You know, that was... That, that was you know, yeah, the, there was a philosopher, I can't remember his name now, he, uh, his Japanese uh, descent, his American philosopher basically said that it's the end of the world, we've done it. It's just a nice, liberal, democratic, mm. capitalistic world. But to me, what's happened is that capitalism has been let off the leash That's what's one of the major Mm. reasons. It's just been unleashed and it's just gone nuts. And all capitalism is ultimately aimed at and always has been. And consequently, it's a problem which requires a leash is that its heartbeat is the profit motive. Nothing Mm. more, nothing less. Charles Dickens, as usual, nailed it with one of his characters in one of his novels, neither of which I can remember, forgive me. But he basically said at one point, "You buy cheap, you sell dear. Hmm. That's it." Yeah, and that 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 ethos, that central kernel, is all very well, but it doesn't have a moral component. It doesn't have an ethical component, and it's historically tried to uh, fudge it with trickle down theories and 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 Bill Gates. Uh, donating all his money and Twiggy Forrester, donating what is invariably about one-fifth of his trillions. But it, it doesn't have a moral component. And when it gets let off the leash by our governments, it just keeps accumulating profit, which is why we've got these obscenely rich individuals and CEOs and directors, money that they couldn't spend, you know? And so I think since the 80s, that's one of the main explanations why, and concomitant with that has been the ethical decline. Make money. Buy that car. Build that extension. Look after yourself. I'm all right, Jack. All that mentality. Greed is good. Gordon Gecko. Way back then. No, that's, I mean, that's he's true. Donald Trump. True. He's Donald Trump. He absolutely and, is. And he's just a selfish prick. Mm-hmm. He, he is a bad, horrible person who is not what human beings should be like. And he's the president of the free world. And that's all happened. Who would have man? I mean, seriously, you have to just ask obvious questions. Like, who would have imagined it 10 years ago when whoever was president, Bush or maybe Clinton, that a clown like Donald Trump, uh, you're fired. Hmm. It's going to be the man. I mean, that is surely compelling evidence that we have slumped and we're in trouble and as far as I'm concerned there's not much longer to go
2: I can tell you who did predict that yes The Simpsons really an episode of The Simpsons about 20 years ago referred to President Trump which you know has been played many times since then but You're absolutely right. I've said it many times on this podcast and to anybody who will listen, but Donald Trump looks like the guy who's playing the guy who's the president.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's sort of like he reminds me of that movie which I never liked where Charlie Chaplin took the Mickey out of Adolf Hitler. Have you seen that? I can't remember what it's called now. But Chaplin was very political and uh, he, he was very anti fascist. And he did this movie where he mimicked. Adolf Hitler, and it was like this really quite funny caricature. Well, Trump's like that. I mean, he makes yeah. me laugh. He does. Yeah. He genuinely makes me laugh.
2: Yeah, my wife says the same thing, and, and, and I just I can't come at it from that angle because <laughs> I'm just like, it, I, I get where you're coming from, but it, it, you just described it. That the man's in his own world and, and you know, supposedly the leader of the free world, and he says things that are literally laughable.
0: Mm. And and, and look, he is a bad man. And he's surrounded by seriously bad men, and they are invariably men. These guys are bad guys. You know, they'll have internment, they'll have a civil war, and we might well have one. And it's all been on the menu that they drew up how many years ago? Mm. You know, these these guys are serious henchmen.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I think when you wake up uh, to a YouTube story that says uh, Donald Trump is currently uh, investigating how he can pardon himself, <laughs> uh, I think one needs to seriously worry. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, John, look, it's been really enlightening for me. I mean, listening to you and Leon slug it out with a few things has has been. Uh, you know, a a real education for me just to listen to both of you talk about your different perspectives. Um,
0: uh, Yeah, I'm really glad that we had the conversation. I'll I'll be honest with you. I I don't know if if I mentioned this to you, Leon, or you may have picked it up, but I was really quite apprehensive about coming on this, and it was because about it being my story and 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 it and it's my apprehension, I think, is related to this thing about the individual and um all that and i I really I'm really glad that we've actually had a conversation about issues together and sharing like a real conversation, not me talking about my school and I mean, I did all that, but you know, I think that was really what interests me more uh at this time in history than telling you about me, so that that's been great.
2: Well, um I'm gonna let you in on a little secret here, John. Yes. A hundred and sixty plus episodes later, what we've worked out is if you start with the story about the person, the actual stuff we want to talk about comes so naturally. Yeah, right. So well, look it's been a fascinating conversation and I, I really enjoyed your your perspective and your insights on a lot of things. Now my my role in this little situation we call a podcast is that I'm I'm responsible for a number of things that happen behind the scenes. And I've taken responsibility for just little quips and smart ass comments along the way. Um, so from the second I heard you, uh, I thought to myself, I, I closed my eyes and I just listened to the voice. And mm. I thought, if if that doesn't sound like the Mike Myers character, fat bastard, I'll, I'll go he <laughs> and, and all I'm going to ask you to do yes. as you sign off is I just want you to say these three words, I'm dead sexy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm, 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 more than, I'm more than happy to oblige with what is what is clearly a platitude
2: <laughs>
0: uh, are you ready to sign off now let's do it okay there's probably about one person left listening to this battery because it's been going for about four fortnight. <laughs> i'm gonna be late for my work anyway just to leave you with three words three compelling words I'm dead sexy.
2: <laughs> that was John Lawrence on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you again next time.
0: You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story podcast on all leading podcasting platforms. The Territory Story podcast. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.